So how do you explain the problem of evil? Even those of us who are Christians, those of us who love God and who serve him, we struggle to comprehend why he does not spare us from pain and from tragedy. Non-Christians, those who have no faith in God whatsoever, they struggle to believe that God would seemingly turn a blind eye to those who are in suffering. Now, you may have heard this argument. Is my mic on? It is, okay. You may, you may have heard this argument that people, or you may have heard this argument from people who outwardly, outrightly deny that there is a God. The argument goes something like this. If God existed, he would be all-powerful, meaning that he would have the power to prevent evil. Since evil exists, God must be either unable or unwilling to prevent it, which means that he is not all-powerful. If God is able to prevent evil but is not willing, then he cannot be good. If God is both able and willing to prevent evil, then evil would not exist. If God is unable or unwilling to prevent evil, he will not be God. Therefore, God does not exist. That's their argument. In today's lesson, however, as we continue to work our way through the book of Luke, Jesus will compel us to get beyond our philosophical arguments about the problem of evil. He will, he will challenge us and compel us to get beyond these arguments and deal with our real need, which is to change our attitude towards God and towards sin. We call that repentance. Repentance. Jesus will reference two tragedies of his time. One political, and the other a natural disaster. And he will challenge us to self-reflect, to reflect within ourselves before he drives home the point that, is, that it is full time that we all repent. Let's turn to Luke chapter 13, and I'll read for you from, verses, from verse 1 to 9. There were some present, so Jesus was having a conversation with uh, his disciples and with the crowds around him, there were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told this parable, this story. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now, I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, 
let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then, if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Now, the first point I want to bring to your attention this morning is that tragedy requires personal repentance rather than just a public outcry. Sometimes when there is tragedy in our community and in our world, there is a public outcry. There is outrage, and there should be. I want to suggest to us this morning that it first requires personal repentance and not merely a public outcry. And so some people came to Jesus to report that, that two tragic incidents had happened in their community. Because you see, that's what we do. That's what people do. When there is tragedy, when there is um, some catastrophe in our community or in our personal lives or in our family lives, what we do is that we come to God, we come to Jesus with our answers. We come seeking clarity. We want to figure out, why would you have allowed this? So tragedy drives us to Jesus with our why questions, which is not a bad thing. It is always good to come to Jesus. Now, in the first incident that they report, the political leader of the Jewish province of Galilee, the leader being Pilate, he had ordered a hit job, if you will, on the Jewish citizens of Galilee. He had ordered that their blood should be mingled with the animal sacrifices, the blood of the animal sacrifices that were being offered up to God. So this was an abuse of political power. This abuse of power had plunged many innocent victims or, or families of innocent victims into grief. But it was also a sacrilegious invasion of a very sacred space. It was sacrilege. Now, we cannot fully appreciate how significant this was to the Jews. An attack like this on innocent people in a sacred setting would surely stoke fires of outrage to a very high level. Now imagine if somebody marched into our space this morning, this sacred space in which we have gathered to sing songs to God, to pray to him, to baptize people, to honor God. If they marched into this space and went on a shooting spree while we were doing those things, would we not be in shock and grief and outrage? Wouldn't we have questions of how God could allow something like this to happen to innocent people in a church space of all places? Is God pronouncing judgment on us because we have sinned? Those are questions that we would want to ask. Whenever tragedy happens, there are always more questions than answers. But look at what Jesus does with our questions. Let's look at what Jesus does with the questions that we ask during our times of tragedy. He asks a more important question that calls our attention away from our own questions and from our own philosophizing. And he puts it squarely on us. This is what he says. This is what he asks. Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? Notice that this question by Jesus 
is a rhetorical question. He is more interested in our self-reflection. He, he wants us to reflect on the question rather than answer it. In fact, he goes ahead and he answers it himself. But he makes his answer very personal to you. Notice how many times the pronoun you occurs in his answer. Three times. He says, no, I tell you. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Now, while you let that answer sink in a minute, look at the second incident that Jesus referenced to make the same point about our need for personal repentance. Now, this one is a natural incident, a natural catastrophe that happened in the community. Perhaps it was not of, not of the same magnitude as hurricanes Idalia and Lee, which devastated the East Coast. It wasn't of the same scope as the Moroccan earthquake that killed nearly 3,000 people. It wasn't the, on the same magnitude as the Mediterranean storm Daniel, which I just learned yesterday, the death toll from that has already topped 11,000. It wasn't on the same scale at all, but it was a natural uh, catastrophe anyway. Jesus references a tower at Siloam that collapsed, killing many innocent people. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us who the victims of this tragedy were. Were any among them young children? Were any of them somebody's spouse, parent, sibling, maybe the only breadwinner in their family? Were any of them scheduled to be married that same day or perhaps that same week? The Bible doesn't give us any detail about any of that. Nor does, nor does it give us a glimpse into the grief that must have enveloped that entire small community. What is clear is that this was a tragic incident beyond anybody's control. Now, Jesus' Jesus' question for us to ponder is this. Did God single out these victims for punishment because they were worse sinners than you or me or anybody else? Now, Jesus' answer is the same one that he gave as the one in the first incident. He says, no, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. I believe that there are three things that are significant about Jesus' answer. First of all, it cautions us never to be too quick to jump to conclusions about why God allows some people to experience tragedy and others to escape it. We must never be too quick. We must never think that we know why. God spared somebody from tragedy, but allowed somebody else to experience it. Now, Hurricane, Hurricane Maryland devastated the U.S. Virgin Islands in 1995. Three months earlier, Randy and I had just built our first home together, and we moved in um, in May of that year. Hurricane Maryland struck in, I think, September, on September 15th of that year. So we were in this home, ourselves and our three-year-old daughter. Well, Randy was at work that evening. I was at home with her. And Hurricane Marilyn, with 120 miles per hour winds, just devastated the housing stock on the island. 
I mean, we woke up the next day, and pretty much everybody's house in the valley that, in which we lived had either lost the rooftop or was completely damaged. Ours remained standing. Were we more righteous and godly and holy than the others? Certainly not. We have no idea why God allows what he allows, because he's God. I want, us to say, I want to say to us this morning that tragedy is not always a sign of God's judgment. When bad things happen to people, it doesn't necessarily mean that God is judging them. Nor is a tragedy-free tragedy life an indication that God favors you because you've been more righteous than victims. That's the first reason why Jesus' answer is significant. The second reason is that Jesus will not allow you to hide behind your philosophical questions. He will keep the focus on you. Now, here's what I've noticed, and I'm sure you have as well, or maybe you haven't. And so since you haven't, I'm going to tell you. How about that? Our philosophical questions are often red herrings that we throw up to distract the attention away from ourselves to someone else. We want to make ourselves seem righteous and caring, and we want to make God seem unrighteous and uncaring. And so we ask questions, philosophical questions like this. How could God, how could a loving God send people to hell? I'm sure you've heard that question asked many times, haven't you? How could a loving God send people to hell? The implication behind that question is that God is unloving and that God sends people to hell rather than people choosing to go there by their own behavior. If I'm right, please say amen. Please tell me I'm right. That will help me preach a little better, right? Secondly, we ask questions like, how could God allow so much killing in the Bible? And the implication is that we are merciful but God is unmerciful. We ask questions like, how could God watch innocent people starve? The implication behind that is that we are caring, but God is not. But I want to say to us this morning that Jesus will not allow us to go there, not in this passage. He will tell you it is not so much a question about where God stands in times of tragedy, but where you stand with God, that's the issue. It's not a question of where God is. It's a question of where are you? Where do you stand with him? He will say to you, and he will say to everyone, including those who do terrible things to people, that you must repent or change your attitude toward God and toward sin. I was so happy about the song that you chose this morning about Jesus being at the center, because I think that captures, the, the sentiments in that song captures precisely what, I'm sorry, what repentance is all about. As we get on the same page with God, as we center him in our lives, as we make him our one obsession, as we make him our confession, as we put him at the center of our lives, that is what repentance means, and I believe that that is what Jesus is requiring all of, of all of us. You and I must, Jesus says, repent before God if we want to escape a similar judgment as what happened 
to the people in our text. I'm told that John, not John Crisp, but John in the story, discovered that the parrot that he had received as a gift had a bad attitude and he even had a worse vocabulary. Every word out of its mouth was um, very rude and it was profanity-laced. And so John tried his best to change the bird's behavior. He tried by saying only polite words. He tried by playing soft music and anything else that he could think of to get this bird to change. Nothing worked. So finally, John became so fed up that he yelled at the parrot, and the parrot yelled back at him. John shook the parrot, but the parrot got even angrier and ruder. And so in desperation, John grabbed the parrot and shoved him inside the freezer. The parrot began to squawk and kick and scream, and then it suddenly became quiet. So fearing that he'd hurt the parrot, John quickly went and opened the freezer door, and the parrot calmly walked out, sat on John's outstretched arm, and said, quote, I believe I have offended you with my rude language and actions. I am sincerely remorseful for my inappropriate transgressions and fully intend to do everything possible to correct my unforgivable behavior. What a confession. Just when John was about to ask the parrot what had caused this dramatic change, the bird continued, may I ask what the turkey did? <laughs> so he saw the frozen turkey inside there while he was there and figured that he wanted a different fate than the turkey ended up having. That's why he changed. But here it is, my friends. Repentance means that you take responsibility for your words and your actions that have displeased God. You don't focus on what somebody else did. The focus is on you. Here's our second and final point. God delights in your fruitfulness, not in your destruction. In other words, God wants you to be fruitful. He has no pleasure in destroying you. And so this is what Jesus does here in our text. He shifts the conversation from the person to the nation by telling us a parable about a fig tree. Now, fig trees uh, were very common in the Bible. God often used the fig tree to, re to, to refer to a nation. Sometimes he would use a grapevine. He would use plants to refer to nations. And so the vineyard owner in our text, in our story, the story that Jesus told, the vineyard owner, he has, he has a dilemma on his hands. What must he do with the fig tree that he planted three years earlier that is now only taking up space in his vineyard? He could have had other things in, in its place, but it's only taking up space, and it's not bearing or producing any fruit. It's using up nutrients in the soil, but it's, he's not getting anything back from it. And so he says to the servant who is caring for the vineyard, the vine dresser, he says to him, year after year after year, I come to this fig tree expecting to find fruit, but I find none. Cut it down. Cut it down. 
Think about that. Cut it down. But the servant's reply is this. Give, give me one more year to fertilize it. Perhaps a little loosening up of the soil. Perhaps a little adding of manure will do the trick. If it produces fruit after one year, then fine. But if it does not, then you can proceed to cut it down. I want us to note that this story that Jesus tells, which is really a made-up story anyway, it's not real, but Jesus was so masterful at telling a story that could capture reality for us. This is not just a story about a fig tree. It's, it's a clear rebuke of the nation of Israel. God had planted them as a nation. In other words, they never existed before God planted them. And they have had more than ample time to produce the fruit of repentance that leads to righteousness. But they have not. Now, doesn't God have every right to chop them down in the very same way that this vineyard owner had every right to chop down that tree that wasn't producing? Of course God does. But here's where Jesus who is in the role of the vine dresser, steps in and says to his father, give me one more year to work with them, to work with the soil of their hearts, to soften their hearts toward God, to, to perhaps, you know, after one more year of doing all of that, maybe they will repent. Maybe they will turn to God. Maybe they will begin to live lives that please God. And notice that God listens. He listens. And he relents. He pauses. He's willing to hold off just to show us how patient he is. Second Peter chapter 3 and verse 9 says this, The Lord is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So God is not interested in your destruction. He's, he's more interested in your fruitfulness than he is in your destruction. So Jesus' lesson is to both individuals and nations. And this message and lesson is that the clock is ticking. The clock is really ticking. Because in the Gospels, we are told this, even now, Jesus says, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And so God has every right because he's God. He has every right to cut down every person and every nation that is not producing the fruit of righteousness that honors God. But he is willing to give us one more year, one more month, one more week, one more day, maybe even one more hour or minute to change our attitude towards him and towards sin. Here's the bottom line of our message this morning. In times of trouble and disaster, the appropriate question is not, God, where are you? But God, where am I? Where am I in terms of the fruit that you expect from me? That's the question to ask. I'll end this message this morning with, with one application question question is, what kind of fruit are you producing?
What kind of fruit is your life, your tree, the tree of your life producing? I want to say to those of you who have never been in a relationship with God, I want you to know that the tree of which Jesus was speaking in this parable is you. That is very clear. It is you. You are that tree. Year after year, God has been coming to your tree, looking to find fruit. But year after year, he sees no fruit that honors or glorifies him. What you don't realize is that all this time, Jesus has been asking God to give you one more year. One more year. The question then is this. How much longer will God hold out? How much longer will God hold out? None of us knows. Are you aware, I ask you this morning, that the axe, God's axe, is laid at the root of your tree? And that it can be cut down at any moment? God doesn't need your permission to do that. He can do that all by himself. Are you prepared for that? And what account will you give to God about your lack of fruit, the fruit that he expected of your life? I said to you this morning that just like the parrot, just like the parrot, you can admit that your actions have displeased God. In this very moment, you can do that. You can turn to God and tell him that you need his forgiveness more desperately than ever before. I want to ask you this morning, point blankly, who will do that? With every head, every head bowed and every eye closed, I'm not going to put you on the spot. I'm simply going to ask you, will you do that today? Will you tell God that you are ready to give your heart and life to him so that your tree can begin to produce the fruit that he expects? May I see your hand if that is your desire? I see one hand. I see two. I see three. I see four and five, six, seven. Father, I come to you on behalf of these seven hands that were raised. God, I pray this morning. I pray on their behalf, even as Jesus stood in your presence and asked you to give them one more year and to be merciful, I ask you today to forgive their sin, to transform your life, transform their lives, to come into their heart, maybe for the first time, to give them peace with God. May they leave here today knowing that their life has been transformed by the power of Jesus. It is in your name I pray. Amen. I'm going to ask you not to leave before you, you see me and just tell me briefly what God has done in your heart. I'll be available right outside the door. I have two more questions for you as I end. The second question is this. Is your tree already bearing some fruit? Because that's possible. So it's possible that you're not bearing any fruit whatsoever. It is also possible that you are already bearing some fruit. But I want to say to you this morning that just because you're bearing fruit 
doesn't mean you're producing all of the fruit that God expects. So we can probably think, well, I'm bearing some fruit, so I'm good. Doesn't mean that you're bearing all of the fruit that God expects. Sometimes, sometimes God needs to prune you by cutting away from your life the branches and the things in your life that are displeasing to him, that are corrupting your life. As I worked on this point, the Lord dropped something in my spirit, which I think is so true, which is this. That we always have to make a choice between whether to lose a branch or to have our tree cut down by the roots. Now think about that choice. If, if you had the choice to make about losing a branch, no matter how painful that is, and being cut down by the root where you lose everything, will you not choose to lose that branch? Especially if losing that branch allows you to become more productive. So sometimes God has to prune us. And we have to let him. And when God prunes us, it's not painful. I mean, I'm sorry, it is, it is, it is not easy. It is painful. It is painful. But when he prunes us, we will likely bear way more fruit than we're now producing. Here's my question to you, again with all heads bowed and eyes closed. Who will ask Jesus right now to begin the process of pruning them? Cutting some things away from your heart and from your life that are corrupting your tree and preventing you from being as fruitful for the kingdom as you ought to be. I see that hand. I see that as well. I see a third. God, for these three persons who raise their hands today, you know their heart. You know what is happening in their lives. They have raised their hands to indicate, Lord, that they need you to remove from their lives those things that displease you and to help them to begin to produce the fruit that glorifies you. Grant the desire of their heart. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Here's my final question. See, it is possible that your tree is producing some fruit. And if it is, what kind of fruit is it? What kind of fruit is it? There is bad fruit and there is good fruit. And the Bible calls the bad fruit by these names. I think there's a slide there to show you. These are the names that the Bible uses to produce, I mean, to refer to the bad fruit that often come from our lives. Sexual immorality. Impurity. Sensuality. Idolatry. Sorcery. Enmity. Strife. Jealousy. Fits of anger. Rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and everything like it. That's bad fruit. And then the Bible goes on to say, I warn you as I warned you before, Paul himself speaking in Galatians chapter 5, verses 20 through 21, just in case you doubt me, Paul says this, I warn you, that is after he has listed these fruit, these bad fruit. It says, I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So that's the bad fruit. Is your life producing bad fruit? The Bible calls 
the good fruit by these names. Here's another slide to show them. Love, joy, patience, peace, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And then Paul goes on to say that those of us who belong to Christ are expected to produce these fruit as we allow our flesh to be crucified with its passions and desires. You see, we have passions and desires that don't honor God at all. They indulge our flesh. They allow us to bear bad fruit. Again, finally, with all heads bowed and eyes closed, who will ask Jesus right now to begin to produce in them the good fruit that glorifies him? Any hands? I see hands. All hands really should be up. We want to honor God with our lives. And so as I close this morning, there are two divine sentences that are being spoken over us right now. One is, cut it down. And the other is, give them one more year. Two divine pronouncements. One, cut it down. The other, give them one more year. Now, the latter only delays the inevitable. So I ask you today, who wants, who wants to repent today? That's a word that we don't use anymore in churches. Because we believe in just everybody being fine and dandy and on our way to heaven. Sometimes we need to repent. God wants us to. Because our hearts and our attitudes and our actions displease him every day. We sometimes need to get on our faces and say, God, have mercy. Forgive me. I messed up again. I didn't want to. I did. In a moment of weakness, to satisfy my flesh, I did this when I should not. Please, have mercy. Forgive me. Let us pray together. Father, thank you for, the, for your word to our hearts. God, please. As we leave today, impress these words on our hearts. Let them not escape our memory, even as we lay down to rest during the day or at night. Cause these words to come back. Show us how you want us to apply these words in a way that honors and glorifies you. I pray these things in Jesus' name.